Get off my world. Get off my world. Get off my world. I'm Pat. I'm Kelvin. I'm Joshua. And this is Get Out My World, a podcast that talks about Doctor Who, mostly the classic series, but eh, what the heck, we'll talk about the new series now and then too. So I hope you will join us for five rounds rapid as we get to the bottom of what we like and don't like about our favorite show. And as always, we like to start these things with a round we call Temporal Grace, uh, which is, broadly speaking, something that we like about Doctor Who. Kelvin, do you want to start us off? Uh, yeah. Uh, recently, I read the um, Ninth Doctor uh, comic from uh, Titan Comics, uh, the collection called Weapons of Past Destruction. You're all about the comics these days. I have been uh, getting much, much more into the comics. Uh, it, of course, features uh, Rose Tyler, because technically there's no way the Ninth Doctor can have any other companions <laughs> other than Rose, and, and Jack Harkness. It's written by Calvin Scott... And uh, uh, drawn by Blair Shedd and Rachel Stott. And I, I really enjoyed this. It's uh, the Doctor essentially uh, getting caught in between a war between these two entities, one of which have uh, taken it upon themselves to fill the um, the Time Lord's missing niche in the universe as sort of the, the overseers of time and, 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 and so on. It also features a weapons bazaar featuring Time Lord weapons, which shouldn't exist. <laughs> it's really cool. I really enjoyed it. The art is, is very good. They do a great job capturing the Ninth Doctor's voice and Jack Harkness's voice. I just think it's a really good comic. I also read the Eighth Doctor comic, A Matter of Life and Death. I did not like that one very much. <laughs> but, but since it's Temporal Grace, you'll keep it to yourself. Yes. <laughs> you prefer the David Niven film. <laughs> uh, well, I recently watched, uh, with my wife Carrie, the BBC serial The Nightmare Man from 1981. It's available on DVD. Uh, it's written by Robert Holmes and directed by Douglas Camfield. Wow. And it stars a lot of Doctor Who actors that you would recognize. Uh, most importantly, Maurice Rovis, who we talked about a few weeks ago. He played Stotes in uh, Caves of Androzani. He's a guy that I just always like seeing. Uh, it's a four-part serial in half-hour segments, and so it feels a lot like Doctor Who just with that. It's set on a uh, remote island, and there's mysterious things happening that might be supernatural, that might be extraterrestrial. I won't give anything away because it's definitely worth watching. But it, it's very well-written, well-acted. It has that early 80s, late 70s Doctor Who feel to it. It's not of the level of the great British television shows of the time, like The Sandbaggers or Edge of Darkness or whatever. It's not to that level. But for people who like Doctor Who, this would be something that I suggest you might want to check out. It might be available online. I, I haven't checked, but you can certainly buy it on DVD. And we liked it a lot. Cool. Well, my Temporal Grace is a little more personal this week. One of my beloved cats passed away uh, this week. But before she died, we had picked up a rescue kitten 
I only say before she died because it's one of those little pet peeves of mine about like a, an animal dying and immediately replacing it like it's an inanimate object. We treat them as individuals in our household, but I will save that rant for my animal rights podcast. <laughs> so get off my world humans is what that's called, but uh, we'll, we'll link to that later. <laughs> um, but anyway, we rescued this kitten that was a, a, basically a feral cat had had these kittens out in like negative whatever degrees it is right here because we're recording in, in Minneapolis in January. It's really cold. So this is a tiny, tiny kitten, I think about 10 weeks old. And so when I got home, uh, my wife had announced that this kitten's name was Luna from Harry Potter. Luna Lovegood. Oh. And what you need to know is there is a, a little bit of a, a schism in our house between nerddoms. There is the Harry Potter faction, which is my wife and daughter, and the Doctor Who faction, which is myself and my son. So I lightheartedly suggested, oh, it's a feral cat. We should call her Leela. And my wife agreed. And I guess what I'm saying is I'm very suspicious. And I just wanted to share this, that there's some other really big Doctor Who, Harry Potter thing coming down the road that I'm going to lose because of this. And she knew, like, I'm like I'm afraid she's pregnant. Yeah, your next child. <laughs> the next child is going to be like Mad Dog instead of like, I don't know, like Borad Chumley Scrimshaw, which is what I would name him. Xenophilus or something like that. <laughs> So it's a small, suspicious victory that I would like to share with you. So we have a kitten named Leela. I know, I'm the only Doctor Who fan who's ever named a cat Leela. They're not out there out there. Well, I, I would only be concerned if the cat suddenly starts throwing poisonous thorns. <laughs> All right, so for round two, we're going to talk about the third War Doctor Big Finish audio arc. Agents of Chaos, which are the three stories The Shadow Vortex by David Llewellyn, The Eternity Cage by Andrew Smith, and Eye of Harmony by Ken Bentley, all three of which star John Hurt as the War Doctor and Jacqueline Pierce as Olystra. Yes. And uh, briefly, for people who aren't familiar with the plots, The Shadow Vortex takes place in Berlin, East Berlin, 1961. There's a Dalek agent there who they need to interfere with. Uh, and then in uh, The Eternity Cage, Cardinal Illustra has been kidnapped by, as it turns out, sorry, spoilers here, uh, the Santaran Battle Fleet, which they want to get into the Time War. <laughs> and then th certain things happen uh, where that doesn't occur. And <laughs> then Eye of Harmony largely takes place in a battle TARDIS as a plot is revealed to destroy the Eye of Harmony on Gallifrey, which would retroactively make the Gallifreyans never turn into Time Lords and thus neutralize the Time War from the beginning. But that's not everything. There's more complications. So uh, that was that was the worst summary of these that I could possibly imagine. I think that was pretty good. Yeah, so how do we want to approach this? We've talked about the first two arcs before, mm -hmm. and we know where this is all leading, of course. It's leading to Day of the Doctor. Mm -hmm. So like Rogue One, this is all prequel yeah. stuff. What was your favorite? It's a toss-up between Shadow Vortex and uh, Eternity Cage. I think I might mm -hmm. lean towards the Eternity Cage just because uh, of the added geeky oomph of Santarans. <laughs> geeky oomph. Yeah. I like that. I like that, too. I, I guess, but yeah. I will take the Shadow Vortex just because you okay. chose the Eternity Cage. Of course. But I was kind of in the same, yeah, in the yeah. same ballpark for myself. The Shadow Vortex is nothing special. Uh, I mean, in the big picture, I know I'm picking yeah. it as my favorite, but what I like it is it's set apart from the Time War. The yeah. Daleks are in it minimally. It's, we are on Earth. Yes. Um, John Hurt's War Doctor 
is pretty laid back. He's not being tortured throughout it. No. We even see how comfortable he is with doing a couple creepy things that he would never do before, like crossing timelines to defeat somebody. Mm-hmm. So it really feels like this is the, your typical day in the War Doctor's life. It's a smaller scale story than you would think a War Doctor story would be which is kind of nice. And I also thought it was, uh, of all the possible doctor companions, East German secret policeman is like one of the last ones I would have thought to pick. <laughs> that was kind of cool. I yeah. mean, just because it was like very different, you know. I, I had also made a note of that. I'm, I'm yeah. basically in agreement with you guys. I liked the first two basically just fine. Uh, they're different types of stories, and I appreciated Cold War Berlin, that, you know, John Lake Array territory in 1961 is something that we haven't really seen in Doctor Who before, and that the Doctor picks a Stasi agent as his companion is probably a mark of his current moral flexibility that we're expected to believe mm-hmm. of the War Doctor. They do kind of mention, can't think of the character's name, but some stuff in his past that he's, you know, maybe not a, a garden variety stuff. Yeah, well, he's ways. a school teacher. He was captured on the Western Front during the war mm-hmm. uh, and then repatriated back to, to England where they fell on the other side of the wall. So, yeah, like, I mean, they were human beings. Uh, they weren't all, you know, Cold War era Soviet stereotypes, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe my frustration with the story is that there wasn't enough there. That's a very rich period uh, of storytelling history here in the Cold War in general, and Berlin in particular in 1961, in which we had done a little bit more of that. Yeah, I mean, I think you could have almost done a historical there, somehow the war doctor trapped there and just do parallels with the time war and not even have the time war interfere. And I think in general, my continual disappointment with these box sets is that they're not willing to even designate one story per box set to something a little uh, experimental or, no pun intended, outside the box. Mm -hmm. Not everything has to be a cataclysmic battle with the Daleks. And so you get that hint of it in the Shadow Vortex, like, oh, this is something different, but you're right, they don't really commit to it. Without visuals, uh, then you spend a lot of time explaining what the background is and who Mm -hmm. the characters are, uh, but it could just as well be somewhere else. You kind of get the idea that David Llewellyn just watched the movie The Lives of Others recently, and was like, oh, let's let's put yeah. it in, let's put it in East Berlin. Uh, That's a that, great movie, by the way. That is, we should <laughs> you do absolutely podcast. should see it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's when it's arbitrary like that, then I kind of resist it. Like, oh, I'm enjoying it, but you know, this could just be anywhere. It could be the Old West, and it would be the same story. It could be ancient Rome. Who cares? I'm a little disappointed. We're spoiling the heck out of things anyway, so I'm just gonna yeah. say it. I'm a little disappointed that it turns out the official Soviet position on the Daleks seems to be, let's make a deal with them. (laughs) No Soviet government would ever be that insane, particularly Nikita Khrushchev's in 1961. No. This is bananas. That really took me out of the story. Like, oh, come on. Like, the world-destroying threat of the Daleks at the Soviet Empire would be would recognize this for what it was, not just as a tool and you know to resist American well, I, imperialism. I, I, given the whole Dalek monomania and unity, like Soviet establishment might see them as kindred spirits in, in a sense not of just, you know, that kind of we are one I, entity. I resist that pseudo historical Yeah, okay. <laughs> idea. Yes. But but maybe we'll take that online and we'll, no, we'll do no. bare knuckle boxing <laughs> outside in my backyard. Yeah. Um, we'll discuss it on my communism podcast. Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> also called Get Off My World. <laughs> How about the Eternity Cage? Yeah. You really liked it, Kevin. I like the Eternity Cage. I thought it was pretty good too. Um I I, I 
love that the Santarans want to muscle in on the Time Lord just because it's a big fight. <laughs> you know, like, because that's totally Santaran psychology. Just like, we are the greatest warriors ever. We must be a part of this just because. That felt very true to me. Yeah. Yeah. I did find it kind of interesting. I object to it in, in, in a number of ways, but but I, I still kind of like that the Centaurans are presented as just absolutely no match for the Daleks. Like, at one point, they're holding their own, and everyone's surprised. Yeah. Like, but, but they're still resisting? What? <laughs> and, then, and then finally, the Daleks are just like, ah, enough of this. And then, like, blammo! Well, I will say, too, about this story, that is an interesting part of it, and it's the only mystery probably in any of the stories in this mm-hmm. box set, every other story pretty much unfolds exactly how you think it's going to unfold. Yeah. And so this one actually had a mystery that left me going, hmm, what are the Sontarans doing to beat the Daleks? Yeah. It's not super compelling, but <laughs> at least there was something about it. They were like, there was a puzzle to figure out. Yeah, it, it, it's sort of weirdly uh, non-brute force oriented for a, for a Sontaran, yeah. Well, Big Finish is always best when there's some mystery or a puzzle mm-hmm. because that way the drama... And the exposition uh, run in parallel. Yes. Because they can't compete with a televised series on action because it's just explosions and people screaming. And this was written by Andrew Smith, who wrote Full Circle for the actual TV show. Interesting. Okay. Many, many, many years ago. And it has a couple great lines. And one of my favorite lines in here is a Dalek line to the Santaran. It is not an insult. It is biology. Oh, yeah. I loved that. That was so good. It's like, burn, Santaran. I did like the uh, time strategist Dalek character mm-hmm, yeah. that uh, shows up through all three stories. He has a different vocal quality, distinct from the other Daleks. And um, and I always kind of hated this idea of Daleks having personal names. Dalek-sec. Dalek-sec. I mean, I have this tendency to like the idea of Daleks with like no individuality <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't have the whole history in front of me, but Big Finish has been developing this Dalek time controller character for many, many years. He's mm. in a lot of Dalek episodes mm. with the eighth and sixth, and I think the fifth. I think he's popped up in a lot of their stories. So they're kind of going going through the continuity and placing this character kind of as a sort of substitute for Davros, a sort of Dalek mastermind, dealing specifically with time issues. Works better for that than, like, say, a, a Dalek emperor would be. Yeah, yeah. Gotta talk about Honeysuckle Weeks. Oh, of course we Honeysuckle do. Weeks is in here as Helena from... Uh, Honeysuckle Weeks is in Foil's War, of course, yeah. one of my favorite shows. I recognized her voice immediately. Very recognizable Very distinctive. Voice. Yeah. Very different for audio, very kind of soft. And I think they were manipulating, at least for British audiences who would know Foil's War very well, casting her helps to hide the fact that they're going to do a twist with the character. Yes. Because I think you would just immediately like her. It broke me up inside. (laughs) (laughs) If you'll indulge me, I must read this little thing that my friend Bucky wrote on Facebook when I was talking about Foil's War some years (laughs) ago. With every word she speaks, we want to pinch her cheeks. <laughs> Were we ancient Greeks, not Anglophile geeks, still we'd be stone freaks for honeysuckle weeks. <laughs> I told him, Bucky, you speak the words that are written on my heart. <laughs> oh, yes. No offense, but if I ever have a daughter, I will not name her Honeysuckle. You're more of a lilac yeah. guy. <laughs> uh, we do know that the war doctor is a drinker. Because he, yeah. he, he says, you can buy us around. And there's a lot of conviction in his voice. <laughs> That's right. But yeah, I thought, I thought that was a, a fun episode. Uh, but I thought the final episode, the Eye of Harmony, was just 
pretty much a string of disappointing cliches. The person who works with the Daleks and then is shocked by being betrayed and then some techno jiggery that gets them all out of it at the end. And the fact that it all takes place in the battle TARDIS, it's like familiar territory and it, so it becomes just exposition. I found it really hard to imagine. Yeah, I stretched my compassion to find things that I liked about Eye of Harmony and I, I did come up with a few things. The concept of the time mines I liked quite yes. a bit. I'm going to set this to go off 10 minutes Minutes ago, I love that. And I, the only reason she knows to set it off is because it blew up. Already went off, and <laughs> go, oh, right. I must have set this for raises unpleasant questions about free will. But I could just repeat what I said last week about Rogue One. It's it, you know we're just filling in gaps, mm-hmm. and and there's nothing so exciting about this. I really feel like oh, it's got John Hurt and Jacqueline Paris. How can I not like this? And and it's not that I do dislike it. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's so very inessential feeling, and just eh, we're just putting in into the little gaps before Day of the Doctor comes up. But having said that, part of the problem is that there isn't really anybody to care about very much. The Doctor does his Doctor things and most of the other characters are going to get smoked by the end anyway. Uh, And so by default, the character I'm most interested in is Elystra. Yeah, she's (laughs) really Kind of care about her. She thinks she's protecting Gallifrey. Mm -hmm. I I think they've done interesting stuff with her character. She's not just a power-hungry person. They've made it clear that this is to save and preserve Gallifrey. So she's not your typical, like, Barusa who's gone mad type of character. And I hope they keep her there in this gray area. And don't do a big reveal in Xbox set that she's willing to kill everyone in the universe to stop the Daleks. I would like to see her stay in this. Maybe has good motivations. Maybe doesn't always do the best of things. They're the most compelling team seeing uh, John Hurt and her together. I agree. The final thing I do want to point out, Helena's thing is stupid. Oh, it is ridiculous. hella stupid. Uh, listeners, what she wants to do is save her grandfather from being killed by stopping the time war, by retroactively blowing up the Eye of Harmony so that there would never be time lords in the first place. So she would never be born and her father... Yeah, so the entire web of time would be completely different. And, and, and naturally, she's betrayed by the Daleks, but even if, she, if this had gone off the way that she'd wanted to, that sounds like horrifying to me. That's like the worst, most ridiculous... Also, it's insulting. I think it's a little gendered insulting, too. Like, oh, I've got this. Like, you wouldn't necessarily write that, that a man char- a male character would do that. Yeah, kind of like very, you know, like science fiction stories from the 50s when, when a woman was actually at the center of the story. It was always some weird doing something impossibly reckless and endangering a bunch of lives just because they, they love someone and, and miss them. Yeah. I you think know. they do it for a male character. I think it might be someone different than the grandfather. It would yeah. probably be a wife. It'd be or a, like yeah, Mr. Freeze, would, I guess. Yeah. You know, I just thought it's interesting. Ken Bentley is one of Big Finish's main directors. And he does some really excellent direction. Uh, it was interesting that he wrote this script, and then it was bizarrely hard to visualize because usually he's uh-huh. a, a really good director at making you kind yeah. of aware of the action. So it maybe just seemed, it, it, it seemed like the same scene over and over again mm-hmm. to me, and not in a tiny whiny Doctor Who sort of cool way. It just yeah. seemed like. But the element of that that I did like was that the Dalek time strategist started lecturing Helena on her unhealthy emotional coping strategies <laughs> late in the episode. You're, You're right. always looking backward and regretting what you've lost when you should be looking to the future. When, 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 you, when you get that from a Dalek. Yeah. <laughs> Live for the moment. When you're actually helped by a Dalek therapist. <laughs> Do you need someone to talk to? <laughs> You need to let go of your hate. 
And now it's time for Special Topics Dalek. And today, Kelvin, you have a Special Topics Dalek for us. What is it? Uh, I do. Uh, I'm not sure how to phrase this, so I'll just say it as shortly phrased as I can. Do you think the doctor is mentally ill in any way? <laughs> because it seems to me like it would be impossible to experience all the things the doctor has experienced over, you know, 2,000 years and not experience some kind of difficult psychological trauma. You know, a, a lot of, like, when the doctor's being, like, weird or, or, or abrupt or silly or strange, that's always kind of passed off as, like, well, it's it's because he's an alien. But I'm wondering if, like, maybe that's just because there is literally psychological damage that he has. The, well, the new series is pretty explicit with it. Yeah. With post-traumatic stress syndrome. A lot more, yeah. Um, I, obviously, I think of uh, Christopher Eccleston torturing the Dalek in mm. Dalek. I don't mean to equate Asperger's syndrome with mental illness, because that's not where... Uh, sure, yes. So, with that caveat, but you had mentioned some time ago yeah. that Peter Capaldi had space Asperger's or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, that's kind of what it seemed like. So, what's the term non-standard? It's not... Neurotypical? Ne thank you, neurotypical. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But he clearly doesn't have the same sanity score that a human does. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't lose sanity points in the same way. Now, I'm, my Call of Cthulhu is peeking through here. Um <laughs> But I wonder if maybe it might have something to do with the weird Time Lord relationship with memory. Mm -hmm. Because so many of these traumatic memories that we think of that might cause anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder or whatever in human beings are because you can recall them. And But Time Lords have a different relationship with memory. We don't even know if they remember from regeneration to regeneration the same things in the same way. We've mm -hmm. talked about this on the podcast before. Get, it gets filtered through a whole different personality, like the memory. So you think maybe, yeah. I mean, it could be that regeneration is sort of a mental safeguard, too, where every now and then you need, yeah. to, kind of, you need to kind of cleanse your, uh, your... It's it's rebooting the system to get rid of all the malware. So the, the memories yeah. are almost <laughs> almost like reading like the diary of someone who is related to you who went through this Yeah, is it thing. like It's that? like, like a know. filter maybe Sorry. historical distance that you have yeah. then, that we don't have and, and I mean we even kind of get a little of that diagnosis from the war doctor and day of the doctor when he's saying mm -hmm. you know what the doctor that regrets the doctor that forgets where mm -hmm. he's kind of pretty much saying that it makes a certain kind of sense that time lord society never dealt with psychology much I mean not, not that you see time lord therapists walking around in, in the citadel very much but I almost kind of get the sense like the Time Lord answer for therapy is just tradition. Conservative ruling class kind of thing of just like, well, this is just what we do. And that is supposed to cover up any emotional difficulties that you have. Are, are you asking if there are Time Lord therapists? Kind of, Wait. because I, good Lord. I mean, imagine how much study a Time Lord therapist would need. <laughs> you know, these very remarkably intelligent minds that are very old. And have experienced many things, like unpacking, like, well, this is because you, you know, you, your mother never really loved you the right way. <laughs> you know, like, what I'm mother? just wondering about that. I was born in a loom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we should also probably assume in a science fictional context that yeah. they're advanced enough to cure any physiological oh, yeah. disorders. So, like, any mental illness arising oh, from a serotonin imbalance or whatever. They, they, they don't be. appear to be able to cure uh, the 11, for example, from the Doom Coalition. That's true. Yeah, we don't know what caused that. You're right. right. If it's physiological right. or if it's a mental trauma that caused the Time Lord Or if he did it to himself yeah. deliberately for some reason. True. We also know from the new series, they tried to retcon that the master went mad mm -hmm. yeah, looking, looking into the time vortex. Yeah. There is those touches of insane characters, whereas a classic series would just say he's evil. 
Yeah. There's no psychology related to it usually. Yeah. But I think part of what your question is, is by the behavior of the doctor, do we think that he's exhibiting traits of mel- mental illness? Yes. And that's a very broad question, of course, because yeah. we have 50-some years of data right. to look at. Uh, I'll have something to say about this in Legopolis. Okay. But putting well, that aside yeah. for the time being. Well, he certainly displays being, being closed off emotionally, mm-hmm. uh, denial. I think there's a definite lack of empathy at specific moments in the series, you think of Pyramids of Mars, mm. where he essentially has no time for Sarah's horror at the death of Michael Sheard or whoever mm-hmm. it was. It's like, oh, we don't have time for this. we yeah. got to go on. How much of that is socialization, though, too, where you, he grew up in a culture of non-interfering, observing, unemotional people? We don't know exactly how he grew up, but is it his Time Lord uh, heritage coming through in those moments of utter coldness or lack of empathy? Is his mental illness demonstrated by his compulsive willingness to interfere with everybody's mm-hmm. life? He's got OCD. It's, he's certainly abnormal by Time Lord standards, right? <laughs> he, he counts all you the know, planets like he a, saves. Like a sort of martyr complex or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, I gotta get in there. Yeah. I gotta get in there and do something. <laughs> Yeah, maybe he's got, like, Munchausen by proxy. Maybe he's <laughs> he goes there knowing it will endanger them by his very arrival, and he will get to save them. We're kind of getting into a weird area here, though, of, like, all heroism is due to mental illness. <laughs> People butting in where they don't belong uh, due to some neurotic compulsion. Yeah, I could talk about this. But we'll table that one, too. <laughs> That's what, what's Mal's line from uh, Firefly? A hero is somebody who gets other people killed. Yeah. <laughs> that fits the doctor. Mm-hmm. It does, yeah. You know, from a cold-hearted point of view, well, I mean, most of the time these people would presumably be all destroyed before he got there anyway. But he does lead people into danger, and they do occasionally die. The fact that it's his companions very rarely doesn't let him off the hook because there's temporary people that he drags along with him all the time who get smoked. There's got to be an actual therapist out there who's a huge Doctor Who fan who would write this bit of fan fiction that is just mm-hmm. the Doctor <laughs> sitting on the couch <laughs> and being analyzed. There's got to be a blog out there. I could see like a humorous modern day series episode of like the Doctor just suddenly getting an appointment at some like present day Earth therapist <laughs> and just unloading a whole bunch of weird <laughs> crap at them. Now again, we come to the randomizer. And the randomizer has selected for us, of all things, Legopolis. The last fourth Doctor's story starring Tom Baker, written by Christopher H. Bidmead and directed by Peter Grimwade. Um, Randomizer being what it is, we picked three regeneration stories in a row. Crazy. (laughs) General thoughts to start off with? Last episode, Josh's special topics, Dalek, was since doing this podcast and revisiting shows that you might not have seen uh, for a long time, has your opinion changed radically on any particular episodes? And we had a discussion back Mm -hmm. then about what that entailed for all of us, but had we discussed it this week, Legopolis would have been high on the list for me. It has dropped substantially in my estimation since I saw it as a kid. I mean, I don't mean to say that I don't like it, but... What I like about it is actually just a small fraction of what's actually going on. I agree with you totally. I had this same experience rewatching it this time. I really 
I mean, it's fitting that a story about entropy should diminish over time. <laughs> but it really has for me. I like it less with each viewing, not more. Uh, the things I have always liked about it remain, but the things that don't work seem to stand out more and more. Huh. I still like it. I, I still like it as much as when I first saw it. I, well, good. I, That's what I, discussion uh, is for. You know, just kind of, I, I like the idea that it's a, you know, simultaneously a huge scale Doctor Who story, but it's told in such a small scale kind of way. Mm-hmm. It's basically just, you know, the Doctor and, and the Master and, and, and Tegan getting caught up in, in this conflict, but it's it's not like, ah, I will destroy these galaxies or anything. It's just this, this very small kind of story. It winds up ending with the fourth Doctor's death, and judging from what the TARDIS view screen shows, the destruction of about a quarter of the universe... I think this has the highest body count. Theoretically, of the highest episode. body count of any Doctor Who story. Like billions of people die in this yeah. episode. <laughs> ha ha ha. Yeah, <laughs> no, uh, yeah well, I, I agree with all that. And it's frustrating to try to explain exactly um, my feelings about it. Because when when we discuss it, like you just did right now, I agree with all of that. Mm-hmm. Me too. Um, I think it's, it's got strong concepts. The whole uh, Legopolis itself, I think, is terrific. It is. Uh, I love Anthony Ainley in this one. He's probably never better. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's still over the Maybe top. Maybe survival. I think he's survival really good in survival. Quick. Yeah. But uh, I like the master in this one quite a bit because first, like always, his plans go totally off the rail and he needs to team up with the doctor. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, compensates and he decides to try to hold the entire universe for ransom at the end. There's like, all right, good on you. And he finally kills the doctor, too, which is something that, I mean, Roger Delgado, as cool as he was, he looked like a chump after like 50 times trying to kill John Pertwee and never did. But here, first time out, Anthony Ainley uh, kills Tom Baker, and Tom Baker, of all people, too. So, yeah, okay, this guy's a real threat. I I think there's a certain weird poignancy, too, that the fourth doctor dies by... Literally just losing his grip. Yes. <laughs> you know, he just literally can't hang on any longer. And that whole feeling is there throughout yeah. that he is losing his grip in a figurative way. From the very beginning, he, he's talking about the second law of thermodynamics. As a kid, I, I loved this. Like, I, I felt like an English professor that I was saying, there's such huge themes here that I'm yes. grasping. Yes. It's the end of the Doctor and it's entropy. And this was like talking top tier Doctor Who for me as, as a child. I thought yeah, it was I mean, the it's, it's very greatest much thing like ever. A young geek's first exposure to actual themes in, in a science fiction story and not mm-hmm. just, you know, cool stuff happening in space or whatever, yeah. you know. And I think my experience was very similar to both of yours too. This was certainly the first time I heard the word entropy. Yes. And I was able to regurgitate it in my English classes. You know, when we talked yep. about Lord of the Flies, that was what I what yeah. I wrote the theme on, on entropy. It's incorrect, but I <laughs> in, you know, the ninth grade, whatever, give me a break. Um, <laughs> But I loved it at the time, and you're right. The th- uh, the thematics are there right from the beginning. It's a very effective, doom-laden atmosphere mm-hmm. from the very first shot with the overcast sky and the policeman being dragged in and what looks like a very painful-looking murder yeah. in the very first scene. Then we get the cloister room and the cloister bell. We have all of these high-angle shots that Peter Grimway is doing. You're looking down on the yeah. Doctor and Adric. Everything's breaking down. The, fo- the phone breaks down. The car breaks down. The TARDIS is crumbling and overgrown. I eventually just kind of lost track of all the things that are breaking <laughs> in the first few episodes. 
and I love all that and everything I've just described I, I love, but the texture of it is so problematic in parts. There's lots of dumb things, like we're going to flush out the master from the TARDIS by materializing under the Thames and opening the doors so that he gets flushed out. That's got to be one of the stupidest things in Doctor Who ever. I mean, come on, that's posturous. It's, yeah. it's double stupid by the fact that they don't even do it. It's all this setup to go land on a barge. Ha ha. Oh, wait, it's the Watcher. And then they go have a conversation and they forget the whole plot. It's, it's very pointless. I think, it was padding. I think a lot of what I like about this was the whole... I, and it might be a, a reason people don't like it too, but the whole concept of the Watcher, because this is, you know, this last season of of Tom Baker is when they start really um, doing overtly mysterious, never really explained things. Mm-hmm. You know, like the Watcher, who is apparently a future version of the Doctor, or some kind of psychic projection, like uh, Choje and Kanpo and in, in um, Planet of the Spiders, or I, t- I guess I'm also thinking of like Warriors Gate, which also has a lot of stuff that they just don't explain. I love. Warriors Gate, yeah. though. I, I like The Watcher a lot. Yeah, I, I, think I, like the, I think The Watcher works. I guess the one element in Logopolis that always seems kind of weird to me is just the completely random reintroduction of Nyssa. Yes. And which I mean, is just like, she just shows up on Logopolis. Oh, this other guy t- brought me here. This When and, I watched Logopolis this time, I played a little game where I tried to imagine it without Tegan and Nyssa. It's nothing against even Tegan and Nyssa for anyone who loves Tegan and Nyssa, but yeah. what if they had pushed that to have the fifth Doctor have a separate adventure and meet those guys and just do a story with the Doctor and Adric, and this would be so much better. You must be reading my mail, because <laughs> that was exactly where I zeroed in on what I don't yep. like about Legopolis. It would have been, been better if there were no companions, yeah. and part, because Nyssa's introduction is totally random. Mm-hmm. Tegan's is heartless. And random. Yeah. Uh, she comes in. She's terrorized. She wanders around the TARDIS. Her aunt is killed. Yeah. The doctor knows that and doesn't even tell her <laughs> for a very long time until she figures it out herself. And then he does the most perfunctory, there, there, I'm so sorry, and then turns back to the monitor and keeps talking. And that's a theme throughout the entire thing. Tom is absolutely heartless. He's crabby to Adric right from the beginning. All of their dialogue could have been very normal, but See, he I, yells at yeah. Matthew Waterhouse yes. every single line <laughs> yes. that he does. I always took that as, like, because of the Watcher being present, he knows something horrible is going to happen and, like, his life is going to be over. And I always took that as kind of his, you know, being sort of emotionally on edge so bad. Yes, but he does it even before they meet the Watcher. Even before he sees the Watcher. He's just yelling. He does. I enjoyed his interaction with Adric before they get out of the TARDIS, when he's just explaining things. When he's in that, like, garden area of the TARDIS and and he seems to be, like, brooding about something. And they don't, I don't know if they quite ever explain what he's brooding about. Pretty clearly he knows something on some level is wrong well, it right fits, from the start. It fits thematically with the fact that everything's falling apart. And so yeah. even in Tom's attitude right from the beginning, you get that. that. There's some sense of doom that he's feeling, even if he doesn't know where yeah. it's arising from. Mm-hmm. To me, though, it seemed to be expressed in a, I'm Tom Baker, I'm surrounded by actors I don't like and I don't want to be here anymore, and so I'm just going to kind of yell... Yeah. They, they thematize it later, too, where uh, in a very cruel way, the doctor tries to put the responsibility for their, his companion's discomfort onto them. He says, Nissa, you contacted me. Tegan, your curiosity got you into this. He, that is, she went into the TARDIS, which is very unfair. 
She yeah. went in to find help for her and her family member <laughs> uh, and then got lost. And Adric, you're a stowaway. Yeah. Well, that was episodes ago or whatever. And, and so this is cruel and unfair to all of them. Yeah. And it's very weird and out of character for the doctor because uh, there isn't even any kind of point where – He's trying to convince them to do better, like in Sarah Jane in the in the Ark in Space. Like I'm going to yeah. be mean to you to inspire you to do something better. He's just being gratuitous. I still, and, I, it still kind of fits into just emotional stress. For me, I just found it unpleasant. I think to your point, you cannot decide to characterize the Doctor that way for thematic reasons, that I think there are thematic reasons to characterize him that way for this episode, mm. and use this episode to introduce your brand new companions. You, you can't do both those things. Because yeah. they seem so perfunctory in this story then, and well, they just I, take I, up I, lots I think of there's time. something about like them being brought in right at the very end of the Doctor's life and seeing him change and regenerate, and then, <laughs> in, in a way, what they, what they tried to do with like the sixth doctor where he regenerates and he's like super uh, erratic it? erratic and really pretty genuinely mean like he sees mm-hmm. a guy dissolved by acid he's just like oops and you're saying yeah. they do the reverse here yeah he's well this erratic is erratic and goes into well, well you know and then, like eventually like the sixth doctor was going to be portrayed as kinder and you know as he gets more yeah. more yeah. And used I'll, to it and it's like like this was like a, a different way of, of doing that kind of concept but i think it worked better yeah and i'll have some thoughts on this in our fifth round for yeah. this, uh, when yeah. we talk about the regeneration specifically. But yeah, I think it's like a lot of Doctor Who, they're trying to do a whole bunch of things at once, and they uh, they, they rub against each other mm-hmm. poorly. The regeneration scene, I'll touch on this just briefly, is let down a little by production values. Like the fall is not as dramatic, obviously, as it could be the way it's directed, because mm-hmm. they don't have stunt doubles. They can't drop somebody off of anything. It's really hard to get past the, the companion's heads, indicating the Doctor falling by nodding down as they follow his path from the radar dish to the ground. It's very unintentionally comical. I, I guess I was pretty emotionally invested enough in the fourth Doctor, and still am, that that still works, even though it is cheap and clumsy. That <laughs> could be... <laughs> <laughs> could be the phrase for all of Doctor Who. <laughs> it still works even though it's cheap and clumsy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be so down on Logopolis because it was very formative for me. It really mm-hmm. it really was important to my growing up. This was one of the things that I thought was, this is intellectual television. Yeah, uh, yeah. It kind of looks a little ridiculous now, but mm-hmm. with lines like... You know, what is the second law of thermodynamics? Entropy increases, which is something I've remembered for decades yep. now, just psh, off the top of my head. I love the I love the infinitely regressing mizanabeam tardises yep. that are nested within one another, even though they took it from the time monster, mm-hmm. which is always our touchstone yeah. these days, the time <laughs> the monster. Time monster. <laughs> I mean, that first episode is my favorite. A lot of things are done very well. To see Tegan and her aunt drawn in and you as the viewer know, like, they're doomed. Mm-hmm. You know something's up with this TARDIS. You know where they're going. Mm-hmm. And I think it's impressive, and it says a lot that even Tom Baker, not wanting to really interact with his fellow actors, can carry an entire episode of essentially exposition. Like, all the scenes with the Doctor and Adric are exposition about what's coming in that episode, exposition about the past of Doctor Who to mm-hmm. set up the chameleon circuit, but it's all really fun to watch, and Tom Baker, even at his sourest, is still really captivating. And, and this it's is impressive. him at his sourest. Yep, and it's impressive to see him just, like, take a bunch of exposition and just keep it moving. Yeah. Uh, I'm really intrigued by The Watcher. The Watcher went and got Nyssa. 
So does that mean the Watcher knows that the Fifth Doctor needs Nyssa? If he knows what's going to happen, did yeah. he just save one person from the entire quarter of the universe? Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a question. Well, there's a whole lot of unwritten stuff that we can yeah. fill in with yeah. our fan fiction. Like, I sure like they're... to think that he's the Valyard somehow. <laughs> I don't know how. <laughs> just made that up right now. Uh, but the best line for me, though, is I, I forget what it's in reference to. Block transfer computations, I think. Uh, Adric says, really? And the doctor says, no, transcendentally. <laughs> yes. <laughs> A great joke. There, there's another great Tom moment um, when they first meet Tegan, when she comes out of the inner rooms of the TARDIS into the console room, and he just does one of those big boggle eyes and, and looks to Adric just out of the corner. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrible way to describe it on a podcast, but it's it made me laugh out loud. And it is just Tom just totally fooling around. Like, <laughs> what's the last thing the director wants me to do in this scene? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the master's best line is, Envy's the beginning of all true greatness. <laughs> Which I'm going to have, like, embroidered and put up on my wall. And the worst line, of course, is returning to Tom's heartlessness toward uh, Tegan. She asks about her aunt, you've seen her? And his response is, a little of her, because she's been shrunken to death by the master. Is that like the least sensitive yeah. thing ever? I mean, in all fairness, Tom Baker's doctor is one of the least sensitive doctors that we, we forget because he's so funny, so yes. we like him. But if, <laughs> there's one thing I've noticed on my revisiting of these episodes for the podcast is Tom Baker's one of the biggest dicks in how he's written as the doctor. I mean, Tom. most of the time he rivals like series eight, 12th doctor in just not caring. Yeah. <laughs> Three quick things. I, I really like the incidental music in this story. It's it's like a really good transition between the more orchestral soundtracks and like the strictly synthesizery soundtracks. Patty Kingsland. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a a good mix of those approaches. The guy who plays the police inspector, who talks to the fourth mm-hmm. doctor, is Tom Georgeson, yep. who was the gang leader in A Fish Called Wanda. <laughs> <laughs> and um, oh. Um, I really like the guy who plays the monitor. Yes. Oh, he's really good. That voice. That's, that, that's like that's like one of the best doomed supporting character portrayals and roles in like all of Doctor Who, I think. John Fraser. Yeah. It's kind of too bad we don't see more of the Logopolitans. I thought it is such a great concept. Yeah. The idea that the math they do could actually physically transform a computer if it did it. As I remember from reading the Virgin and BBC novels, uh, they got a lot of play with block transfer computations Mm -hmm. in there. They would extract, I forget what writer it was, probably Lawrence Miles or whatever, Mm -hmm. extrapolated that the TARDIS exterior shell is based on constantly evolving block transfer computations. Yeah, the whole thing with the entropic decay of the universe and the CVEs was they really ran with these science fictional concepts Mm -hmm. in the novels. And yeah, so it's a shame that we never saw more of it on the television show. He was in Columbo, John Frazier. Really? He was in that really bad episode with um, uh, with Honor Blackman, and uh, they're in England. And it oh, that's, oh that, sounds, yeah. that sounds terrible. That would be bad. Yeah, well, it's just it's very corny. Uh, but well, anyway, we'll have to listen to our Columbo podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still bizarrely, woefully ignorant of Columbo. <gasps> Ooh, we may have to correct that. I've mentioned that before, and you keep giving me these weird gasp expressions when I say that, but. Uh, but I really have never seen a, it's a the Columbo. greatest show ever. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to Legopolis. <laughs> we should have a relative dimensions about Columbo. Yes. 
Okay, like like if there's some more geekier than normal Doc, uh, Columbo episode or something. Any episode of Columbo. Okay. Columbo is essentially a regeneration of the Doctor. It's sort of a sort of unshaved cigar smoking American version of the Doctor. So we're getting way too off base, but the, did you read that article about Columbo? That was a few years ago where somebody was suggesting there's all of these versions of Sherlock Holmes out there right now. There's Benedict mm-hmm. Cumberbatch, there's Elementary, there's the Robert Downey Jr. movies. But wouldn't it be better if there were just multiple versions of Columbo out I there? I did read that so article. Like, it was great. We start, and it's it's Mark Ruffalo as Columbo, <laughs> of course. It's Mark Ruffalo would be absolutely perfect. I could then, see that, yeah. But then you could just, every season it could be somebody else. It could be Kathy Bates. They, were, <laughs> they just have all these completely different versions of Columbo. And then oh. it started getting me thinking. You could still have, because uh, Kate Mulgrew played Mrs. Columbo mm-hmm. in the short-lived, not very good Mrs. Columbo series. She's still around. Mm-hmm. You could just have her as the mom of whoever the new Columbo is. Oh, and yeah. So it's, yeah. It's and Columbo then they could Jr. talk about your dad. <laughs> and your dad would be so proud. Or she could show up every couple of episodes. Oh, I, just, I, I would write this. I would be the executive producer on we this. We could just do our own fan Columbo Jr. audios that we'll put on the internet. <laughs> and we'll keep sending them to Mark Ruffalo yes. until he takes a restraining order out on us. Oh, Let's watch Columbo right now, Yeah, Colin. like, entropy has affected our discussion of Legopolis. <laughs> it's, it's collapsed in a discussion of Columbo. All right, so for our fifth and final round, this is The Death Zone. And because of the accident of the randomizer, which for the last two times has come up with Planet of the Spiders and Legopolis, plus the fact that... When the Seventeen was here, we talked about Caves of Androzani. We've now done three regeneration stories in a row. Yeah. It seemed uh, appropriate that we have a death zone about these regeneration stories. What is the best regeneration or best regeneration story of the ones that we've just watched? And we've deliberately maybe not talked about the regeneration scenes very much because we knew that we were going to do this. So what uh, what do we feel about this? Well, I think... In some ways, these three stories are very interesting to put together because Mm. I think they are the model regeneration stories, particularly for the new series. These are the stories that establish that regeneration stories are about the Doctor bravely sacrificing himself. We've got the weird, vague first regeneration of William Hartnell. uh, This barely explained at all. We have the really kind of sick idea of basically a life being taken away by the Time Lords, a form of capital punishment and of uh, war games. And then after these regeneration stories, it gets weird and has to do with the, the state of the show at the time. Then it's, you know, Sylvester McCoy in a wig or it's part of the TV movie and that's not really follows the structure. So these are the prime regeneration stories of the classic series. So I think there's two ways to discuss this. What's your, f- you think is the best regeneration scene? In what is the best regeneration story? Not as which of the three of these is the best story, but which story best represents a final story for this doctor? Or if someone else has another way of looking at it. Well, they're interrelated questions, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, I think starting broadly and then zeroing in, I would say that Caves of Androzani, I would personally think, is easily the best of the three stories just as a story. Just as a story. How it works as a culmination for the doctor... Um, that's a little more tricky. We could talk about that. Uh, Josh, you made a strong case last time for Planet of the Spiders being a culmination of all of the idiosyncratic elements of John Pertwee and Legopolis. 
I don't think it culminates Tom in the same way, and I'll get to the reasons why later. But it is universal and grand. Like, there is something really powerful about him falling to his death, saving the universe. The master has killed him, and he's got a sweet little, oh, the moment has been prepared for thing at the end. So it, it has an epic quality to it that is something that you want after seven seasons of Tom. Yeah. Peter's uh, regeneration is just so much more quiet by compared. Well, the world is blowing up around him, mm-hmm. but, he, uh, but he regenerates with just Perry there. So I, oh, where am I going with this? I'm, I'm dialing in. I'm coming from the outside in. in. I will say that it's interesting when I looked at all three of these together, that the John Pertwee story is the only one that marks the end of an era, where technically the other two are the end of those doctors, but they're the beginning of new eras. Mm-hmm. Tom Baker has lost all his previous companions. He's at the end of a season mm-hmm. with a totally new producer. They're taking on a totally new tone for this show, and we're saying goodbye to him at the beginning of something new. Even with Peter Davison, he slowly lost Tegan, and he's lost Turlow, and he's with a companion he's just met who's brand new to him, and this is really looking forward. Out of all the regenerations, John Pertwee is there with all of his friends. It's everybody. It's the unit family. I mean, the master would have been there if Roger Delgado was still alive. You even have a a letter from Joe. So there's a little bit of everything short of having Liz Shaw be mentioned. You kind of have everything there. And it's it is the very end of the John Pertwee era with nothing other than a mention of Dr. Sullivan, nothing really forward-looking about Tom Baker. So that's sort of interesting. And in some ways, it's the most reminiscent of any other regeneration of maybe Tenet's regeneration, where yeah. it kind of does that sort of victory <laughs> lap. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the victory the, death the, lap. The, the farewell does. to her, yeah. like the, the, like the, the saying eagles. goodbye to everything, yeah. I, I, I noted these down uh, for similar reasons, Josh, to what you're uh, you're saying. A recurring problem with regeneration stories is that they tend to happen at the end of a long series of cast changes mm-hmm. when people start leaving and the actor playing the doctor is like, well, maybe I want to move on too. So the result of that is that in Legopolis and in Caves of Androzani, the doctor is regenerating around virtual strangers. Uh, Adric's only been around for a few episodes. Nissa met the doctor in the last episode. Tegan shows up for the first time in Legopolis. In Caves, Perry's only been around since the last one. But in, even in Planet of the Spiders, we forget, but Sarah's relatively new, too. She's only yeah. been around for one season. Um, mm-hmm. The emotional uh, heft might have been stronger if Joe had stuck around. And I think that when Katie Manning left, that was when John Pertwee decided, like, well, I'm maybe going to wrap it up. And, th- and this t- continues for into the new series, too, not with six and seven because of its unusual circumstances yeah. of the production, but... And then also, I guess, not with nine, because Christopher Eccleston was one and done. Mm-hmm. But uh, ten went on a whole farewell tour, and so he saw all the uh, the old guys that, uh, that he'd been hanging out with. Eleven had Clara, who'd only been around for mm-hmm. a season. But even there, the producer seemed to have felt it needed a little more emotion to it, and they brought Amy back for a cameo. So I think what I'm getting at is that the production of the show kind of works against aligning the emotion of the regeneration exactly where it should be. Like, you would rather have had Tom regenerate around Sarah Jane, and you would rather or have Romana. Had, or, or Romana. Or even Canine. <laughs> Master. <laughs> See him wagging his little tail. <laughs> yeah, if you could rewrite the stuff from the beginning, you would pick different companions to be there at the end when someone's finally going out. Yeah. yeah. And I think the Caves of Androzani is the only story that kind of intentionally leans into that in that the story revolves around 
the doctor who would sacrifice his life for this goofy American that he just met. Big Finish has gone back and retconned it that they had all these years of adventures, but from the intention of that story was this might be their first trip together. That's one of the things I like about Caves of Amazon. It says, yeah, the doctor would sacrifice himself for Joe Blow on the street. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't need the whole universe to be in peril. There's something pretty unique about that. Although it is very different, it is not representative in tone so much of the entire Peter Davison era. I mean, it's more on the nose than Legopolis is, because Peter Davison had some really dark stories. Uh, but he is characterized very differently, a little like uh, the fourth Doctor is in Legopolis. He's a darker version of his character. I think I agree. Uh-oh. I think tonally, Legopolis and Caves of Androzani are, are, are better at conveying a whole sense of this is the end. Planet of the Spiders has all the lists all the various elements of the third Doctor era and just kind of does them all. I don't know if that's as important as the emotional tone. So if the double question is, what's the best regeneration scene of the three and what's the best regeneration story of the three, I'm going to go with Legopolis for both. With all of my being on record as having tons of problems with Legopolis just like ten minutes ago... I still think it's it's the most powerful of the three scenes as a regeneration scene. As much as I like Kay's yes. and as much as I like Perry's cleavage in that scene, <laughs> it distracts me from the emotion that I'm supposed to be feeling from that scene. They should have just shot that differently, I think. But no one wants to hear me talk about that. So uh, as far as a culminating story of an era, I give it to Legopolis with all its manifold failings. I'm kind of inclined to agree. Again, is this just me, you know, the emotional impact it had on me when I was 13? Because it was like the first regeneration I ever saw. Yeah. I think the emotional tone of Legopolis is the best. Caves kind of feels more like a like just the end of like a, a big tragedy. Which um, is why it's a better story. Yes. Uh, and, and Planet of the Spiders is just like, well, he's got to regenerate now. <laughs> it, it just seemed like to me. Yeah. Josh has given us the side eye. Well, I'm going to lose no matter what. Um, Logopolis <laughs> would not be my choice of the best regeneration story. It would be between Planet of the Spiders and Caves of Androzani. My argument against Logopolis, because I'm with you, Kelvin, I love it and I still love so much about it. But the more you watch it, it's so odd to see, see a farewell to Tom Baker where he is so serious. There's so little comedy in there. And that is so much what I associate with Tom Baker. And it's part of like what you're saying you like about it is the, the with the fourth Doctor acting that way, you're like, holy crap. Something is really up, and yeah, that is yeah. part of what draws you in. Yeah, watching it again, I was trying to think of what, like, uh, if he had left for the Graham Williams era, like, <laughs> if, if that had been like a Douglas Adams written final episode, what that would have been like, <laughs> maybe more representative. I don't know. And as much as I wanted to try to talk myself into coming up with an exciting way to say Planet of the Spiders, I, I do have to give it to Caves of Andazani mm. for me, um, for all the same reasons you said about Legopolis that for childhood. I, I thought there was nothing more epic than the Fifth Doctor's str struggle to save Perry's life it's, amongst it, all these evil, foul it's people. It's a tough choice. Ultimately, I love that idea of him just sacrificing himself just for one person and mm -hmm. for Perry, of all things. Yeah. I will say Planet of the Spiders liked it a lot more in this viewing, and I have a, a, a lot more respect for it. And I do think they tried to amp up a little of the drama by forcing the Third Doctor to confront his fear and that it was an almost um, spiritual choice on his part to go regenerate. It doesn't work as well. It's a little crammed in, as you pointed out in the last episode. But 
they tried. And I like what I like about Planet of the Spiders is they try a little bit of everything. <laughs> it is absolutely everything about the John Pertwee era. And they try to take regeneration to one more level of like a personal sacrifice. And they're the first to do that. It just strikes me right now that one of the things that would have made me like the Pertwee regeneration more is if the emotional connection that happened with the doctor as he was dying was between him and the brigadier and not Sarah. Because he'd known the brig for a really long time, and that could have been a good opportunity to establish some sort of pathos between the two of them. By that point in the series, Nicholas Courtney's character had really degenerated into a comic foil, and so it would probably be tough to come back from that. they just went ahead and let it be comedy with the brigadier in that scene. Like, yeah. oh, not again. Yeah. And they tried to play it like, oh, he's seen it happen before and so he's not that distressed it'll just be a new weird guy still still a man you've known for years dying on the floor in front of you <laughs> i think he'd be a little more upset You're stiff right. upper lip but nonetheless but yeah seriously stiff yeah so the death zone uh, we're voting for legopolis yeah under not duress but uh, yeah with just, reservations with reservations yeah i can't, oh, can't oh, really oh, argue with josh i mean case is uh, yeah. better on every metric but for some reason uh legopolis still works for me as a better regeneration story yeah I'll, I'll say that yeah you can say whatever you want <laughs> <laughs> entropy increases <laughs> well that's our show for this week thank you listeners for joining us please tune in in two weeks we will have our special guest jeff tidball of atlas games here in minnesota Jeff has recently designed the card game Doctor Who Time Clash for Cubicle 7 games. So we'll be talking to him about that. And for our randomizer, we will be watching The Deadly Assassin. Oh! Haven't done it before. That's great. Yeah. All right. I'm looking forward to it. So until next time, I'm Pat. I'm Joshua. And I'm Kelvin. And we're saying, get off my world. What Doctor Who episode do you play in the background while you're having sex? Oh, um. oh. I have an <laughs> I can tell you because it only was allowed to happen once. <laughs> An unearthly child. <laughs> Fort of Doomsday. Spearhead from space. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh. They all work. <laughs> Mind warp. <laughs> yes. Castro Volva. Oh. Battlefield. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so, uh, Joshua, you have your State own... of decay. <laughs> <laughs> the hand of fear. <laughs> Don't do any more because I seriously think we should use this. <laughs> Happiness patrol. <laughs> 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 <laughs>